when Jamie said that he was going to do Titus, uh, work his way through Titus, I was so excited, and I said to him, um, wow, can I do Titus 2, 11 through 14, 11 through 15? And he said, well, when are you, when are you coming? And, and uh, um, I told him, and he said, well, that's, that's about where we should be. I think, I think that will work. And I, and I told him, I, I feel selfish picking this passage because I love this, this passage of Scripture, and it, it's brought, come to be a passage that uh, is extremely precious to me and has taught me so much, particularly in the last five years. About five years ago, we were at a, a church in northern Wisconsin, and the pastor said something very curious. He said, there are two kinds of people in the world, those who need the gospel and those who need the gospel. And I thought, did he say that wrong? Because <laughs> he said the same thing twice. So, and that, that caught my attention. And for the last five years, really, Connie and I have spent much of our, our free time studying that concept and learning more and more of what it means that a believer needs the gospel. So you could say, you could kind of say that I've been preparing for five years for this message, this, this time right now. So hopefully we'll be out of here by, you know, sometime mid-afternoon. Um, but I'm going to try to, to encapsulate it a little bit for you. But this passage, Titus 2, 11 through 14, is perhaps the clearest explanation of that idea that there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who need the gospel and those who need the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the light that it sheds upon our lives. Thank you for the beauty of this passage. Thank you that we can, can fall in love with your word, that we can fall in love with the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would, you would use my, my teaching this morning, that you would take it and do something mighty with it. I am not capable of expressing the glories of the gospel, but your spirit can, can show that light in our hearts, and I pray that you would do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The first ten verses of this passage can kind of come across as a list of do's and don'ts. Jamie didn't present it that way, but as you read this, you can kind of just say, okay, yep, I'm not supposed to slander other people. I'm supposed to live self-controlled. Uh, young, older men are supposed to be self-controlled. Older women are supposed to be self-controlled. Younger women are supposed to be self-controlled. Young men are supposed to be self-controlled. Uh, we, the older women are to teach the younger women. Just kind of, you have to do this, don't do this, back and forth. But there's hints in this passage that it's more than just about do the right thing because good Christians do good things and therefore you should do, be good. There's, there's more to that. 
Verse 1 says, But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. So he's giving us a hint that there's a doctrine underlying these do's and don'ts. Verse 10, that the, the, the employee is supposed to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. That as he does his work, he is living out, he is decorating uh, the doctrine, the truth. What is that doctrine? What doctrine, what teaching is Paul talking about here? Well, in verse 11, he finally reveals it to us. Verse 11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. I discovered this week that this passage is a common Christmas passage. That the grace of God has appeared unto all men. But really, this is a gospel passage. It is an encapsulation of the gospel. And if you don't believe me, look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a particular people, a peculiar people. That's, that's the gospel that we're talking about here. This doctrine, this doctrine of grace, the grace of God that has appeared unto all men, that is the, the gospel. This, this, the, 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 we are learning that God is gracious. But he's not gracious at a distance. It's not just, oh, we have a gracious God and he's way out there. No, he appeared. He inserted himself into human history. And that caused changes. That caused transformation. That brought salvation. There's, there's this point in time where God said, yes, I am going to display my grace in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. You see, there's a, there's a world system that is at work all the time. And God has, God has set this up, that the world works in a particular way. And that way is that we reap what we sow. But this world system is not how God's system or God's kingdom works. The world system of you reap what you sow is actually promoted by all the major religions. All the major religions teach you do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, they all teach this. You, you do the bad things, you get the bad stuff. That's how it works. What goes around, comes around. But think with me for a second. Think with me if you truly reaped what you have sown. If it really all came back on you. Every thought Every word, every action, every time you have thought a demeaning, degrading thing about another person. Every time you in pride have lifted yourself up over someone. Every time you have told a, 
a small lie just to make yourself look a little better to that person that you're talking to. Just those subtle things. If it was just those, imagine how they pile up. Sin after sin after sin. All those thoughts. That little disrespectful word that you say under your breath. The times that you have rejected authority. Any time that you have not acknowledged God in what you were doing. Imagine the debt that that is piling up. And that's ignoring all the blatant sins, all the, the direct disobedience of, of even the Ten Commandments. The lies and the lusts and the covetousness that rules this world. What if that all comes back on us? All of it on our backs. Our responsibility. My little meager good works aren't going to cut it. Aren't going to take care of that. The thousands of people that I have, have been selfish with, that I have slighted, that I thought were less than I am, that my pride, my selfishness built myself up over them, that all comes back on me? If I truly reap what I have sown, I'm without hope. But, grace. But, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. You see, Jesus cuts through that process that you reap what you sow. This, this sin, this is what I have sown. But Christ comes and He says, you know what, I'm going to take that on my back. I'm going to take that for you. That when I put my trust in Christ, He who knew no sin, the perfect Son of God, takes my sin for me. But not only that, not only does He take my sin, He gives me His perfect work. He gives me His righteousness. Before God, I am now justified. Just as if I had done everything right. How is that even possible? That doesn't even make sense. I don't deserve it. But praise God, I am not reaping what I have sown. Praise God that Christ could have victory over my sin. That was my fault, my responsibility. And He reaped it for me. That my sin from the past, my sin from the present, my sin from the future... Oh, the bliss of this wondrous thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to His cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. That's the Gospel. That what I deserved, I did not get. 
Christ took it for me, and what I didn't deserve, I did get. His righteousness. And so, when I put my trust in Christ, and I am in Christ, God is pleased with me. How can He's pleased with me? That's that's unbelievable. But that's the gospel. That's God's grace that has been shown to us. Because in Christ, I am robed in righteousness. In Christ, I am seated in the heavenlies. Not because I'm so good, but because Christ is so good. That's the gospel. And that's what he's talking about in verse 11. That, look at verse 11, it begins with, for the grace of God. So do all these things, verses 1 through 10, for, because, because the gospel. Okay? For the gospel, for the grace of God has appeared, that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Verse 12, teaching us. Teaching us, or this word can be translated, training us. So verse 11, the gospel. Verse 12, trains us. The gospel is not just the launching pad for the Christian life. It is the fuel of the Christian life. It not only begins our, our journey with God, our relationship with God, but it, it propels that, it trains us. We have a trainer in the gospel that teaches us three things I want to show you this morning. The gospel trains us to have a different life. The gospel trains us to have a different hope. And the gospel trains us to have a different love. Okay. A different life, a different hope, and a different love. All taught to us by the gospel. Verse 12. It, the gospel teaching us, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So this is talking about our behavior now. It's not talking about our future in heaven. It's talking about in this present world, how we are to live. And the gospel trains us to deny ungodliness. How does the gospel train us to deny ungodliness? Well, what did Christ die for? He died for our sin. He died for our ungodliness. He died for our worldly lust. You see, if we are embracing the gospel, if we are in love with the gospel, if we're claiming that this, this thing, this is our only hope, our only hope is in Jesus and His work on our behalf, that's all I've got. And then we're saying, but you know those things He died for? Something we can kind of play around with. It's not a big deal. No. Our sin is what put him on the cross. Why would we want anything to do with that if we have claimed the gospel as ours? It should sicken us. It's like saying, I have been given a lifetime supply of delicious Poland spring water over here. But every so often, I like to go drink from the mud puddle. 
Because who would? You know, I mean, it just it doesn't make any sense. But when we claim the gospel as ours, when we're captured by it, when we're captivated by it, and then we go and sin, we're doing the very thing that the gospel eradicated. We are dead to sin and alive to God through Christ. Moving on, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. The gospel trains us to live soberly or or self-controlled. Righteously is justice, living justly with other people. And godly is to God. So we have three things. Self, others, and God. Soberly, righteously, and godly. Self-control. How does does the gospel train us to be self-controlled? Let's think about it. Paul is writing to Titus. He's in Crete. In Crete, they worship Zeus. Zeus was a trickster and a seducer. He, he, he liked to play games with people. He liked to seduce women. The, Cretes, the Cretans uh, liked to be like Zeus. They liked to trick people, manipulate people. You get what you can and you can what you get. It is, that's that's the, the name of the game. Because it's, all it is is a game. It doesn't really matter. But the gospel says that our behavior matters. That our sin has supernatural implications. It has spiritual implications. That our sin made it so that Christ had to come and die for us. Our behavior matters. Our lives matter. For God so loved the world. We are loved by God so much that He sent His Son for us. So don't you think that how we live matters to God? A God that would save us? A God that would show us that kind of grace? Absolutely. So we, we, we can't treat it as a game. We can't treat it as, oh, it doesn't really matter what I do today. No. Self-control. But it's not the kind of self-control that you just say, you know what, I'm just going to white-knuckle it and make it happen. I'm just going to stop doing that. No more of that. No, it has a foundation. It goes deep. It has roots in the gospel, in the very thing that has transformed you, that has saved you. Our self-control matters to God because the gospel was given to us and He expects us to live differently because of it. Righteously or justly with other people. Our interactions with other people change because of the gospel. While while we were the enemies of God, Christ came and died for us while we were sinners. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. And yet He showed us love and grace and mercy. So those of us who have received the gospel, how how should we treat other people? If we have received undeserved love and grace and mercy, 
then maybe we should treat other people with love and grace and mercy. We've been given eternal life, infinite grace. Don't you think that we can share some with others? That we live justly. We aren't trying to manipulate. We aren't trying to, to insert ourselves over, assert ourselves over people. We aren't trying to get everything we can out of them. No. We're living justly, rightly toward them. And then godly. How does the gospel train us to be godly? Toward God, like God, leaning in to God, that our our behavior and our actions, our conduct, is in relationship to God. Well, in the gospel, we have been given the most precious thing that God the Father has. It's as if God, God searched heaven for the most valuable thing and found the Son and sent Him to die for us. Romans 8.32 says that it expresses this, this very thought of how... How is it, how would it be that that he who did not spare his own son, how would he withhold anything, any good thing from us? Do you think that, that this God who has shared Christ, has given us Christ, is going to be stingy with other good things? No, he's already given us the most precious thing. He's not going to hold back and be like, hmm... I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't give you the wisdom you need, the discernment you need, the sanctification you need. Maybe I shouldn't give you everything you need for life and godliness. No. He's already given it to us. So why would we, when when God the Father has given us such a precious gift that the gospel describes, the, the, the good news that is so good, why would we not want to draw close to that Father, that God? Why would we resist Him? Why would we pull away from Him? It doesn't make sense if we have embraced the gospel. The gospel trains us to be godly, to desire the loving and gracious God that provided a way for us to come into His presence. Gospel trains us to have a different hope. The world is hoping for all kinds of things. They're hoping to win the lottery. They're hoping to get a new job. They're hoping to get a new spouse. They're hoping for all kinds of things. But in the gospel, we have been given a new hope, a different hope. Look at verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope in the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. This hope is not pie in the sky when I die. This hope is grounded in a historical fact, in a historical event that we're going to celebrate in a few weeks here. That God placed himself into human history, came as a man, 
and died for our sins, was buried and rose again and seen by, by hundreds of people. Those, this hope that Jesus is coming is founded in the fact that he's already been here. You see, the two are directly connected. That we can, we, it's, it's not just, well, maybe this will happen. It's never happened before, but it has happened before. And it was transformational. It brought salvation. Imagine what he's going to bring next time. Eternal life for those who trust in him. You see, we have a new hope. Funny story. When I was, I was a little kid, I asked my mom, when is Christ coming back? And she said, well, when no one expects it. And I took that literally. So I thought the entire world needed to stop expecting Christ's return. And then he'd come back. So every so often, we'd be driving in the car, and I'd see a cloud, and you know how those shafts of light come down through clouds? And I would think, oh, maybe Christ is coming back. And then I'd think, oh no! What if I was the only one thinking that? And, I, <laughs> and Christ was going to come back, but then I thought, I expected him to come back, and he stopped and said, oh, rewind, we're not going to come back after all. Burge expected it. <laughs> we're supposed to hope. We're supposed to expect his return. Last night, we had a Thanksgiving party at our house, and we were sharing some things that we're thankful for. And Connie lost her father um, this year. He went home to be with his Savior. And we, we shared some of the blessings of his life together. And one of the things he, he taught us years ago, we were on a trip, and we were in Myanmar, and the, the young people that were with us were meeting um, some Buddhist friends, and we also had a Muslim uh, money changer who was so kind, bent over backwards for us, and really was, was very, very kind to us. And Ross reminded us, he said, you know, as you meet these people, that are very nice, very very generous, very um, gracious with you, hospitable toward you. It's easy to start to think, oh, we're all trying to get to the same place. And he said, but that's not true. Because the place I'm going to, the place I'm going to has my Savior. The place I'm going to is where Jesus is. That's where I want to be. That's where my hope is. Because the gospel that Jesus provided, the good news that Jesus brought, was so precious to him that he wants to spend eternity with him. That's our hope. That's the different hope that the gospel teaches us, trains us to have. Finally, Verse 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar or chosen people, zealous of good works. In the gospel, we are given a different 
love. In the gospel, we are trained to have a different love. Notice this word redeem. Verse 14, that he might redeem us. What that means is that you are under new ownership. Do you you ever see these signs on restaurants? Under new management. Under new ownership. What does that mean? Why, Why are they saying that? They're saying that because perhaps the last time you were there, you had a lousy experience and you had to wait for an hour and a half for your food. And so we're under new management. We're under new ownership. So now you can come back and maybe you'll have a better experience, a different experience. (coughs) But if you go back to that restaurant and you wait an hour and a half for your food again, you begin to think, okay, either... The new management is just like the old management, or they aren't really under new management at all. You see, this was the problem in chapter 1. The pastors were claiming the name of Christ. The pastors were saying, we have a new God. We no longer are worshiping Zeus. We have a new God. We're under new ownership. But they were acting just like the people of Crete. They were acting just like the people who worship Zeus. They're manipulating situations. They're trying to get for themselves what they can. They're, they're using the gospel for their own, their own gain. Okay, either the new ownership is just like the old ownership, so why should we trust your God? Because apparently it doesn't make any difference. doesn't change anything. Or... You're not really under new ownership. But being redeemed from our sin, from our iniquity, we are under new ownership. We live differently. We have a different desire, a different love than the world has. You see, the world seeks after, it pursues success in status. It wants recognition. It wants acceptance. It wants beauty. It wants fame. It wants comfort. It wants security. But all those things are provided for us in the gospel. You see, we you want to be you want to be beautiful? Christ purifies you. He knows he takes your shame and your guilt. And He purifies you. You want to be strong? Christ takes the weak and makes them strong because He gives His strength to us. You want recognition and acceptance? You are named. You are chosen as a child of God, a son or daughter of the Most High God. And He has accepted you in Christ. Because of Christ's work. When we turn for our sins, when we turn to Christ, our name is written down. You want security? He's got, he's got security. Almighty God has us. 
as his child, has adopted us into his family. You see, this is all caught up in the good news. This is all caught up in the gospel. You want performance? You want success? You have perfect success. Because Christ was perfect. And his perfection is credited to your account. You see how beautiful that is? So we don't have to chase after those things. We don't have to, we don't have to run to the arms of, of a man or woman who is not our spouse. Because we are loved by God. We don't have to crawl back to that, to that website or to that bottle or to the refrigerator for that food, for that moment of joy. Because we have been given the joy of salvation. We have been saved. We have been rescued. We don't have to be slaves to those things anymore because we have been redeemed. You don't have to take the, the, the step of harming yourself just so you feel alive because Christ has given you new life. We don't have to pursue those things. We don't have to love those things. We don't have to desire those things because they're taken care of at a much deeper level, at a, at a level that fully satisfies that never runs dry in Christ, in the Gospel. So what are we to pursue? What do we love? What is our different love? The end of verse 14. They're zealous for good works. Our new love... Is that we are doing good works because the gospel, the good news, is so good, and it has that Christ's good work has been done for us, that now we want to live that out. We want to live the gospel, show the gospel, demonstrate what has been done for us to other people. And we do that by doing good works for those who can't repay us. Just as I cannot repay Christ for what He has done for me. We reach out to the widows, to the fatherless. Do you understand how messy that kind of work is? Do you understand how many times it's going to get thrown back in your face? How, how there's times where you will think you are doing just something wonderful and It'll be spit on. How can you be in love with that? Because you're in love with the good work that has been done for you, and you know that in your sin, you do not deserve it. Just as that person that you're loving doesn't deserve it. Just as that person that you're loving can't repay you. You cannot pay for the payment that was made for your sin. You see, our good works are the foundation of our good works is in the gospel. And we use that so that we can be zealous for good works, even when it, when it comes back on us, 
even when it's used against us, that we can say, I have a new love. The gospel trains us to have a different love. So there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who need the gospel and those who need the gospel. Because your neighbor, who may have never met Christ, may not know anything about him, tomorrow morning when he wakes up, the thing he desperately needs is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you, you may have been saved for decades. You may have come to church services since you were a child. But tomorrow morning, when you wake up, the thing you desperately need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel trains you to have a different life, a different hope, and a different love. Let's pray. Father, how good the good news is. We cannot praise you enough. Your loving grace that was shown to us through Christ. This celebration that we are approaching of his birth. Lord, I pray that it would it would not just point us to presence and excitement and shallowness but it would point us to his work on our behalf for our sin that was done when we don't deserve it. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Lord, it's kind to us to feed us from his word today. Um, I'm going to challenge you that at your lunch tables today, you talk about what the gospel trains you to do. Um, Pick it apart, pick apart that passage with your family or whoever you're eating with, and uh, let's talk about how the gospel changes everything. The gospel is a transforming power. It doesn't only save from hell, but it saves us to Jesus Christ. It's the twofold gospel here, and it is pure and it is good and it is sufficient because the gospel is a person. The gospel is Jesus, and he is pure and he is sufficient. This is going to lead us in a song that helps us rehearse the gospel, remember the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, but let's not forget that other part of it. Now we know what the gospel is, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf for our sins and for a new life in Jesus. Now, how, what does that new life look like?